Welcome to The Future is Female Powerlifting, a show where women of all strengths can explore the world of female powerlifting. I am your host, Heidi Donnell, a 60-kilo powerlifting gym owner, and each episode we bring you an inspiring interview or message to help you unlock your true inner strength potential. Thanks for tuning in. Aloha, my beautiful friends, and we are back. I love it. We're on episode 54, and today we kind of have a cool episode where Christina Myers and I uh, get into what I like to call powerlifting 102. Maybe it's 201. It's been a while since I've been to college, so (laughs) this wouldn't be your basic information. It would be kind of like a little step up. Maybe you're dabbling in powerlifting already. You enjoy you know, lifting heavy, but you've never really kind of ventured into the different realms of what you can compete in. So Christina is a USAPL meet director and um, coach. She's an amazing, amazing coach out here in Birmingham. I'm out um, in Huntsville, so we're a little further away, but I love to reach out to Christina because she has great insight. She's a wonderful resource. She's able to explain things wonderfully, and she's just a very intelligent, uh, smart coach. So the nice thing is that we can get a little bit more insight on what is going on um, as far as competing uh, in USAPL, USPA, and some of the other divisions. So this episode, we talk about one, what sort of divisions you have in competing, what is raw and what is equipped, and how that is different for each federation you might be competing in, what your training might look like if you are a raw competitor compared to a equipped competitor. We also kind of get into what sort of things make an equipped lifter, all right? Because it gets kind of little little small nuances here and there. Are knee wraps equipped? Are, you know, suits equipped? So we kind of get a little um, more uh, detailed, I guess you would say, on what means equipped for the federation that you're competing in. And then we also touch base about federations and why you'd want to enter one federation over another. Um, maybe some little small things that um, you might not even think about. So stick around to the very end. This is a little bit of a longer episode when we come into these Q&As. Uh, we kind of get more. We well, Once we get rolling, we really start to get our creative brains going and, and really talking about uh, some of the things in competing that sometimes we, you know, we're sitting there, we're like, hey, yeah, that's right. And we're kind of bouncing these things back and forth. So stick around. Uh, we love that you are with us during this quarantine. So, hey, I'm here with you. Christina's here with you today, and uh, thank you for tuning in. And of course, this episode is brought to you by my gym, Core Strength and Performance, where we live through strength. And if you are looking to train, hey, we're coming out of this stay-at-home order pretty soon, okay? At some point in the near future, we're all going to be able to come back to the gym. If you feel like you don't even know where to start, where to go, what to do, um, hit me up. My website is core256.com. You can also find me and Christina at um, the Futures Female Powerlifting. That's our Instagram. Christina's is Lift Heavy Princess, and there's some underscores in there. I'll have all her information in our show notes so that you can contact her as well because she does online training too. She's amazing. So let's get into this powerlifting 201. All right. So we 
are going to get into it today. So I was telling Christina that um, I would say for a few months now, Nathan, Nathan Walden, I don't know if he goes by name, Nathan, uh, he's out in my area over here. He's the CrossFit coach and he does powerlifting. His wife is super duper strong. She competed at the last meet that I had a bunch of athletes in over at Golden Ape. Great people. But he asked me, um, you know, is it possible to kind of talk a little bit more about maybe the divisions in powerlifting? So what is equipped? What is raw? What is classic raw? And all of these things are actually different for each federation that you're in. So we're going to go over your basics, I guess another, maybe this would be like powerlifting 102, maybe not 101, <laughs> but 102. Uh, we're not going to really get into um, the more of a meat and what powerlifting is. You, we feel like you already know what that is at this point. So we're just going to kind of give it a little bit more of a breakdown of what raw looks like um, and what these other divisions look like. And why you'd want to be in it, as well as what federations uh, allow these certain um, divisions, because not all of them have equipped or not all of them are best for raw. So we're going to go into that as well as a little bit of the judging and training that might go into each of these divisions. All right. All right, Christina. So we're going to start off with the basic one, which is what I would say, what do you think, like 90% of people now are? is raw yeah and, and that's like raw um for the most part is minimal equipment so i am affiliated with U united states powerlifting association which is the uspa uh christina is a meat director for the usapl um and would you say that raw for usapl is belt knee sleeves wrist wraps can you wear elbow sleeves? That was the thing I was going to ask you. No, you named it all. So you can do um, any shoes as long as they have a sole. So um, Olympic lifting shoes are okay. You can do knee sleeves, but there are a lot of rules about which ones you can wear. And then you can do a belt. Um, and again, there's some rules about what kind, but your basic powerlifting belts are pretty much all approved. And then wrist wraps, and that's it. Okay. so And a singlet, obviously, but... No other supportive equipment. Yes. Okay. So that that is something good to know. So with everything that we probably say here uh, with any uh, division or federation, the federation is probably going to have guidelines. So some are going to be very strict, which I would say USAPL is much more strict about what they allow. Um, and some are going to be very lax, like you can wear a Velcro, bro, Velcro belt. You know, some don't really don't care. Um, so that would be with ever, you know, whatever division you decide to go with, you're going to have to investigate more. So just know that whatever we talk about here, we're going to say, but really you're going to have to do a slight more investigation on your part if you decide to compete in that division. Um, so with USAPL, those are what they consider raw. And at USPA, um, you, it's all the same things that she just said. Um, and you can actually have elbow sleeves. So you can use them for um, not benchy. So you got to use it in areas where it's actually not going to be supportive. So if you need it for um, squatting, sometimes people have a hard time with elbows and squatting. Um, it's allowed in those areas. Um, and then there are certain federations that only allow a belt. For example, 100% raw only allows a belt. Um, and we will talk about that later when we get into the federations. Um, and they only allow a leather belt. Um, and I'm trying to think of what other... I guess neoprene is the other options, right? 
I would say leather belt is pretty much standard in powerlifting. Um, But a lot of people will still come with um, the Velcro belts or a belt that is leather but has padding in it. I get those a lot at equipment check and I have to tell people they can't wear them. Right, right. So yeah, let's get into that a little bit. Well, so let's start off with that belt. So um, I would say a standard, like she said, is a leather belt. And what you don't want to use are Velcro belts. For the most part, you're not going to be allowed to use that. And they are very popular in CrossFit. A lot of people who transition from CrossFit already have some sort of two-pood belt or something that's a Velcro belt. Um, And those are normally not allowed. Um, And any kind of padding is usually not allowed. And um, sometimes even the shape of it. So if the shape is a thick to thin or thinner to wider in the back, that can't be allowed for certain perturbations. So those are things to consider. You can wear a tapered belt in USAPL as long as it um, meets certain guidelines. Like there's a a maximum width that can't go above and um, that kind of thing. But if it doesn't have padding, you can wear it. There's very few that are made like that that don't have padding. I'm going to say that, right? Because it's, uh, what is the company? Starts with a V. I can almost see the name. It's like every bodybuilder I've seen at the gym where it, um, it's a very common one that you can buy sports authority. Yeah. I mean, I, I almost always see that as, you know, creating a space in that low back, right? So they create a bigger padding and then they create a bigger surface area. So it causes, well, what they think will give more support into that area. Um, but there are, um, a few companies that make actual powerlifting belts that are tapered. And I can't think of exactly who, I think Enzer has one. Yeah. Um, so there, there are some out there. They're just not very common. Right. Right. And then you kind of get into the prongs, right? So we're talking about your standard prong, which is a little thing that comes out, sticks through the hole, like your standard belt would be. Um, and then we have lever belts or ratchet belts also known as both of those are pretty much allowed in almost every federation now. Um, and that is really just a preference on your part. I prefer a single prong lover belt if you are going to use, uh, I'm sorry, a single prong uh, belt if you are going to use one with prongs versus a double. Sometimes a double is a bitch to get into and out of. <laughs> it is so stinking hard. So one will almost always, unless you're buying a cheap belt, not snap on you um, and you should be okay. I would say definitely invest in your belt. Like that is one piece of equipment that if you buy something high quality from the beginning, it's one, it's going to have a lifetime warranty. They're going to fix it for you if something happens. But two, it's going to stay in really good shape for like 20 years. I mean, it's not like something that's going to fall apart on you. So it's Mm -hmm. worth spending 100, 150 bucks up front and not ever having to buy another one. Yeah, I have, you know, my husband's one looks like he's, it still looks brand new. And he went to uh, Iraq with it. So it was out in the, in the, in the dust, in the wretched, you know, like weather out there. Um, and he still got it. And it, that's a Cardillo belt. Um, my belt from Australia, I forgot the name of it. Uh, but, you know, common ones are Pioneer right now is a very popular one. What about you? Who's your belt from? I I have an insert lever belt that I don't wear anymore um, because it's four inches and I ended up needing three, mm. but I also have a belt. The, the quality of that belt is great though. I would definitely recommend um, buying something from them, but I have a best belt that is my absolute favorite. And sadly they are no longer IPF approved. Oh, and so, no. yeah, so they cannot, 
I can wear it at local USAPL meets, but not at nationals. And I'm not going to IPF Worlds, but I could not wear it at IPF Worlds if I was going. Um, so I love, love, love that belt. And if you never plan to compete higher than local level, it's totally allowed. And it's a great company and a great belt. Um, but it's very similar to like an insert or a pioneer, that kind of same quality. So any of those, I think, are good options. What was the name of that belt? Best. Oh, okay. It That's is the, the name of the company. Yeah. Best belt. Best <laughs> belt you, is the best belt. Yeah. I thought you were just saying it's the best belt. Okay. I, I don't think I've ever heard of them. They, they've been around for a long time. Um, and they make one of the things that I really like about them is not only do they make it custom to your size, just like Enzer and Pioneer, they take your waist size and make it the right size for you, but they have the most options for actual width. So like they have a two inch and they have a three inch and they have a four wow. and they just have a lot of options in terms of that. So yeah. that's one of the things that I liked the most about them, but they are a really small, like mom and pop company. So I think they've just kind of gotten overshadowed by some of the bigger ones over the years. Hmm, interesting. All right. So this is where we kind of get into wrist wraps. So uh, there are, like we said, limitations on your wrist wraps um, as far as what you can use. Um, usually the limitation is the type of material it is or the length of the wrist wrap. Um, so of each federation you choose, if they don't say that there is a length limitation, then you could probably use as much as you want. Now, why would somebody want a longer one? Well, it, I think they think that it can wrap around more. You would have more stability on your wrist. I don't find that uh, the more is better. How about you? No, I actually use um, the shortest length possible ones for myself. So what is that? And I've double? had longer ones. Yeah, it like maybe goes around twice and that's okay. it. Um, I've had longer ones in the past and I didn't like totally hate them. But like once I got a shorter one, I was like, this is so much better for me. Yeah. But I will say... For people who are smaller, and this was true for me with certain brands that I tried, if it is a really stiff material, and you can kind of get softer and stiffer um, depending on which one. So if it's a really stiff one and it's really long and you have small wrists like I do, once you get it on, you will have this very stiff um, cylinder around your wrist, but because it's so thick, your wrist is still going to move inside of it. Mm, interesting. So that was something that I found with some of the ones that for like the combination of things for a really small wrist. And then it was wrapped around like seven times, you know, it was just right. kind of getting crazy. And so it wasn't really doing its job anymore. And it wasn't because it wasn't a good product. It was just not the right thing for me being as small as I was. I could see that. Right. Cause you would probably need something a little bit more snug, right? Cause if it was too small, I could just see where it still be sort of spacious in certain parts. Mm -hmm. So I have gangster wraps and I love those. I I'm, I don't know what pair I'm on. I've, you know, I, I like them enough that I keep buying them when they wear out. So I like those a lot. Um, A7 has a soft pair that I really like. Um, they also have a stiff pair. So it, you mm. got to just got to look and see what you like and what works for you. And some things I would say, if you've got a friend who's got a brand, do you think you're going to buy from? Like, see if you can just borrow them for a few minutes, you know, try them on, make sure it feels like what you think it should feel like before you buy it. Because sometimes you can't send that stuff back. No. Yeah. Especially if you've taken it out of the packaging and wrapped it yeah. around. Um, yes, I think, do I have gangster wraps? I might have gangster wraps too, which are from Mark Bell's slingshot where you can purchase them. A seven elite FTS has a really good pair. Um, the SBD ones are good. I've heard SBD ones are really awesome. 
I did have an Enzer pair a long, long time ago, and I did like them. I just ultimately bought something shorter. Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty much up to you how much you want to wrap around. Um, and the benefit, technically, the benefit of having a longer one is that you have more stability, right? Because you're going to be able to wrap more around your wrist. Does that equal a better bench? We don't know. You know, which those are all things that, um, depending on how you bench and all different factors that go into training, um, can or cannot help you. In the end, if it doesn't feel good, you're going to be thinking about it. And you don't mm -hmm. want that, you know? And so it's, that sounds like what's going on with you. It's like, you could feel it moving around in there. It's like, then you're going to be thinking about that and not really the lift. So go with something that is comfortable and just know that you will have guidelines on how long it can be. Um, and again, we're still talking about raw. So these things are still allowed in your raw division. Um, and then we get into knee sleeves, which there's another, you know, rabbit hole with knee sleeves. Um, I, I actually have slingshot ones and I bought them so long ago. Um, and most companies I would say have something that'll say IPF or IPL approved, right? They're going to have some sort of stamp on there. So when they see that, especially if it says IPF approved, you know, that almost any federation you're going to compete in, they are going to be okay. Um, Go ahead, Christina. I will say, if you see that label, double check it on the IPF approved list because two reasons. One, sometimes companies have other things approved and so they just slap that on everything, but mm. like not everything they make is approved. And that's the case with some of the things that Mark Bell makes, like some things are and some things aren't. So right. you just got to make sure you pay attention. And the other thing is that list gets updated every year. Yep. And so sometimes things that were approved are not anymore and um, they don't take the label off. Yeah, <laughs> right. Because they want to sell like, it. Maybe you're buying it used and it was IPF approved then, but now it's not. And so just kind of, it's a good um, way to sort things on a website and like look at what you want to buy, but then just double check it before you actually click purchase just to make sure it's all yeah. approved. Same thing goes with USPA. It's updated annually. Um, and as we get more companies Throughout the year, they'll put something out too, saying that it's been updated. You know, this company's now has this item. So they might, you know, like Mark Bell might have one item, but not another, like she was saying. I will say, um, if you look at the IPF approved list, and I don't know if this is the same for USPA, but uh, it can be IPF approved and not be IPF approved to use it raw. Mm, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So like, you just have to make sure that you're looking at something that's approved to use in a raw meat and not just it's IPF approved, but really it's, I don't know, knee wraps. Knee wraps is a bad example because we know you can't use them, but like they're on the list. It doesn't mean right. you can use them in raw. It just means that for IPF equipped lifting, you can use this. Right, right. And then we'll kind of get into that more so too. Um, so I, I think one of the biggest things you just want to remember with sleeves, um, they should be a sleeve. So they should be some sort of like single ply sleeve. Um, you won't know until you see it, but there are sleeves out there that are almost like a knee wrap, right? So it has like, you put it on and you can wrap your knee around and tape it almost, you know, Velcro it on. I've seen a lot of those, which simulate almost knee wraps where you're wrapping the knee around with a big old knee wrap. Um, so you just want to make sure whatever you're purchasing, if you want to go on Amazon, because a lot of people do do that, um, just be very careful on what you're buying. Because, you know, if you do buy something relatively cheap, um, you might not get a very good product. I mean, I've seen a lot of things that look cool when you see it on Amazon, you get it in and it's kind of flimsy. It doesn't really have a good 
bounce to it. And, you know, if I'm going to get away with wearing raw, I want to wear the tightest one I can wear to give me the best support out the hole. Um, so that's, that's the goal. You don't want one that's going to be kind of loose and soft and not really give you any kind of help. Um, even though technically it's not really giving you that much of an advantage. That's why it's in the raw division. Um, and go ahead. I will say if you purchase a good pair of knee sleeves and you um, stay at the top end of the guidelines, so things like SPD are, you know, they're the, they are all the way at the limit of how thick they can be. And I believe um, the strong sleeves are the same way. Yep. They're pretty close to the same thickness. So if you actually use them to your advantage, you will get a little bit out of them. Right. Versus if you just put on a pair of like thinner neoprene knee sleeves, then you truly are just keeping your knees warm. And maybe that's all you want. That's not necessarily bad, right. but just know that they are not all created equal. Yeah. And so think about what you're trying to get out of it before you buy it. Right, right. That's exactly right. Um, and, and elbow sleeves kind of go along the same route. Um, I would say more, more people probably use them for training rather than actual competition, but it is allowed in certain um, divisions. I mean, certain federations and same thing uh, needs to be single ply, very similar to what you would get for knee sleeves. And normally you can't use it in bench where it can give you an advantage. Um, it's just allowed from certain areas where people want to have warmth in their elbows because they probably are rickety old and been benching for too long. <laughs> okay. So this is where we kind of get into the classic raw and not every federation has a classic raw division. Um, in USPA, the classic raw is everything that is raw, but includes knee wraps. So what are knee wraps? When you see somebody on the side, sitting down, legs straight, some other dude on top, squeezing the crap out of their leg, wrapping this knee up. Um, those, for those of you who've never seen it, cause I know a lot of people are like, I don't even know. Um, those are knee wraps. In the USPA, that is considered the classic raw division. So no other equipment I would say is allowed besides knee, uh, knee wraps. Um, and that is actually a different division. So you have different records for that. And with each of these divisions, for the most part, you're going to have different records for it. Classic raw is not in USAPL, correct? Um, there is not a separate division for classic raw. Now you can compete equipped and choose to only wear knee wraps. So there's not a rule that you have to use all of the equipment if you compete equipped. And I actually, um, at local meets, I see that fairly often somebody mm. will want to compete with knee wraps. So they just enter equipped and that's really the only equipment they actually have. So I think um, you just have to look at what you're trying to accomplish with it again. Yeah. If you just want to compete USAPL, but you really want knee wraps, you can totally compete equipped and just use your knee wraps. Yeah. And so the benefit of having knee wraps is essentially it helps you in your squat. It's going to help you out the hole. Um, and so I would say that that's probably the next popular thing that you might see besides raw. Um, you'll see a lot of the big lifters out there wrap their knees. Um, and there's some, uh, some competitions that are just, you know, you can go as high as knee wraps and that's it. Um, so, the benefit is you can usually squat more. And so some people like to do that. Uh, and we'll kind of get into how you would, for the most part, train in these sort of equipped um, divisions and how that would look like for the most part. Everybody's going to train a little bit different, but we're kind of giving you a general idea if that's something you want to dabble in. Um, 
Yeah, so knee wraps, they're pretty much just wraps. They used to be ace bandages back in the days, and that's something that Ollie Lifting kind of brought in. I know it's not funny to even think, but yes, when I was looking up the history, I was like, that's so funny, ace bandages. Um, and so it slowly became uh, knee wraps is what we use here today. And there is, uh, again, limitations in the type of knee wrap that you can use, the thickness of it. So if you decide to do it, you kind of just have to look at the guidelines again to make sure that you're within your uh, Federation guidelines. No. So um, knee wraps and wrist wraps both. I just remembered this. Uh, pay attention to how they attach because Velcro is allowed on um, wrist wraps for sure, but like ties are not. And some CrossFit wrist wraps have ties. And yeah. I have seen knee wraps designed for CrossFit that would not be allowed in powerlifting. Really? Because I have of not. something about them, you know, they have like a, a string tie or something that you're just not actually allowed to have in um, powerlifting. So again, just make sure it's made for powerlifting and not made for something else. That seems so inconvenient to have like a, I think they don't use them for the same reason. They truly use them kind of like the weightlifters do, where it's just mm -hmm. more like to keep their knees warm than mm -hmm. it is to provide extra support. And so I think for that purpose, it works, but, mm. um, yeah, it's definitely so you're not having to like yeah. Take them on and off all the time like you do for powerlifting. <laughs> right, right. Wow. That's definitely something to consider. Yeah. Because with, you know, with powerlifting, you want it, you want to be in those at the least amount of time as possible. So, you know, if you ever see somebody competing in it, they are timing it. So when the other person, usually it's like two people before them, once they start getting up to, to bat, they are sitting down or wrapping one knee. There's a lot of timing that goes on depending on how long it takes a person to wrap the knee because you don't want to be hanging out in those sleeves, uh, in those wraps. That's the difference between sleeves. All right. So now we're going to get into the fun stuff, which is never used anymore. And, you know, the history of powerlifting equipped was what was in. So, of course, they had raw, they had all these things. And then I think what slowly started dividing and Christina and I were kind of talking about this is that um, bench shirts, squat shirts, deadlift shirts, all these sort of supportive materials came into play. And that's where we sort of saw this kind of divide amongst federations as well. Um, as well as tested and non-tested. That's where it sort of like started dividing some more. So let's get into what would be considered an equipped lifting. So maybe you can run down a little bit more about what USAPL considers equipped since they are probably one of the top um, federations out there that people like to compete with. Yeah, so equipped in USAPL, it can only be single ply, which basically that's how many layers of the material there are. It's the easiest way I can think of yep. to explain it. Yep. Um, and so for an equipped lifter in USAPL, what you're usually going to see is the same shoes and the same belt and the same wrist wraps, all of that stuff. The rules really don't change any on that, but they can and almost always will use knee wraps. You can wear a squat suit um, for squats, which is like a really thick reinforced singlet, and it has a lot of extra um, compression at the hip area, especially. So it's going to kind of spring you back out of the hole, just like the goal of the knee wraps is. And then for bench, you can, you wear a normal singlet again, but you put on a bench shirt, which is this, um, really thick shirt that is kind of designed to pull your arms in front of you. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's kind of hard to explain if you've yeah. never seen it, uh, yes. but once you're in there, you're walking around like a T-Rex, you know, like yeah. you can't really move your arms a whole lot. <laughs> so it tries to keep your arms straight out in front of you. So then you have to bring the bar down to your chest and it's going to help you get it back up. And actually, 
I have heard. One of the hardest things about benching equipped is not lifting the weight. It's getting the weight to touch your chest. Yeah. Like, that's the hard part. Right. So, uh, especially when you're first starting out and maybe you're not benching all that much yet, that's the tricky part of that one. And so for bench, regular singlet, bench shirt. For deadlifts, you can wear an erector shirt, which is, it's more, it's another fancy shirt that basically just kind of helps you stand up straighter at the end. So it kind of pulls your shoulders back and, um, yeah. So basically all of it is designed to have some extra compression in a certain area that's going to assist in part of the lift. Yeah. And I would say for most of equipped lifting, the way the equipment is designed, the top of the lift is the hardest part. Yep. Which is the opposite of raw. Yeah. <laughs> right. Cause it's helping you on the bottom parts, which is the hardest and raw. Right. And I, I would say that that is probably that that is probably a perfect way of describing everything that would fall under every federation. And I think that once you add in uh, knee wraps and any of the supportive bench shirt, deadlift shirt, squat shirt, or rector shirt, um, that's what distinguishes equipped versus unequipped. So when you hear people say, "Oh, I you know I lift unequipped," I think that's the biggest distinguishing thing is those items right there. Um, and you know, this is a little like, I didn't know this, right. Cause I was looking up some cer certain history and as John Inzer in, in the early eighties was the person who first started the bench shirt. I didn't know he was the Dundada. Of course he makes the, some of the mo most popular, um, bench shirts out there, but he was the one that came up with that idea. I would say Inzer and Titan um, are two of the biggest equipment companies in terms of like, they make all of the equipped stuff. Totally. And this is a secret. I don't know if I want to tell you, um, <laughs> because of that, their singlets, their regular raw singlets are tighter in certain places. Yes. Like and some power people, singlet. Some people will swear that they get a few extra pounds out of them compared to like an SBD singlet that is truly just like, you know, Index. a totally different fabric. Yeah. So <laughs> if you're buying a singlet and you think that will help you, it's yes. worth looking into. <laughs> yeah, it could be called power singlet. <laughs> um, yeah. And so most singlets, uh, I'm sorry, most uh, equipment or suits are going to be made of polyester, denim, canvas. And again, they're going to be either a single ply like uh, Christina was talking about, or when you get into what we call multiply, which of course is several different layers, um, that is a different division as well. So you have, um, in USPA, um, you're going to have different, you know, records for these things. And why would that be important to you? So let's say, for example, I don't know if you know who Stacia is, Stacia Almahoy. She's from Hawaii. So that girl just dominated all the raw divisions. Okay. And so I believe I, I've never asked her this, but I believe she's like, wants something challenging. She wants something else now, you know, and, um, moving on into equip. So she competed, um, at the ESPN two, you know, the, the world, um, powerlifting that they had on ESPN two. And she, you know, competed, competed all equipped, but you know, I think it's something that you can choose. Um, to do if you want to just dabble in it. I mean, Kim, who was on our episodes a couple episodes before, she now does Equipped, and she's like talking about how hard it was for her to get into this. I had no idea I had to get into this thing, and I had all these marks, and I love it. I love having all these bruises because the thing is so tight. It Just imagine it pinches you in all these areas. Almost everybody gets pinched in the areas where this equipment, where you're putting on these suits. 
I do not find that fun <laughs> and neither does Christina. Um, more so, I'll tell you right now, like, I don't know if I'll ever go into equipped only because it takes a village. You know, you could get into that suit yourself. I'd find it very hard that you could do it though. <laughs> you know, and it would have to be like maybe just the bottom. I was going to actually say that most of the people I know that actually lift equipped or coach equipped will tell you that if you can get into it by yourself, it's not the right size. Right, right. It's too big. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. exactly it. And some people might just train with just the bottom part, right? So they're just using it almost like squat shorts. They make, yeah. So they make those briefs and different things like that, that you right. can um, train in that are not the entire thing, but even just the briefs are still incredibly difficult to get on. So yes, totally. Um, so, I mean, the, as far as choosing raw, classic raw or equipped, that's pretty much a preference on your part. Um, I stick to raw, um, and not even classic raw. I dabbled in classic raw for a while, but to be honest, uh, I train by myself a lot of times and wrapping myself sucks. <laughs> you know, that's the thing that you have to remember is classic raw or using wraps or using any kind of suits. You got to have somebody help you if you really want to maximize those items. Um, you could wrap yourself and I've seen people do it and it's, you know, I've seen it where it's like, man, that's a shame because if somebody wrapped your knees better, you could have easily got 20 pounds out that squat, you know? So there's, there's things that you need to consider about your lifestyle. So like for me, I'll always stay raw just because I just, I prefer just knowing where I'm at without a lot of equipment right now, mainly because I don't want to spend two hours in the gym. I already spend a lot of time in there and that extra time wrapping, unwrapping, wrapping, unwrapping, or it's just difficult. Um, and I don't have that time. So, um, would you ever compete in equipped? I wouldn't. And it, similar to what you said, it takes a lot more time and it takes a lot of help and people, but, um, not only do you have to learn the technique for equipped lifting, you still have to train raw to like build muscles. So yes. like, you're still going to have to do both no matter what. So you can do raw and never lift equipped. But if you lift equipped, you also have to be able to lift raw. Yep. Does that make sense? You yeah, don't have totally to compete does. raw, but you have to be able to lift without all that equipment in order to train enough to actually get stronger outside of the equipment. That's if that it. makes sense. It totally makes sense. And that brings us into sort of the next area is training uh, what that looks like for raw versus somebody who's inequipped. Uh, and you kind of just dabbled on that right there. I think one of the biggest things I hear from anybody who started off equipped, you know, and there's a lot of people, old timers, and I hate to use Julia as old timer because she's my age, but she's been in the game forever. Right? <laughs> and she's my age, but she started off equipped. A lot of people did. And one thing I hear that they all say is that they wish they trained more raw to have a stronger base because once they started taking out all that equipment consistently and just sitting in the raw, they found that they were not as strong as they should have been and it would have helped their equipped lifting, right? And so that's what that's what Christina's saying is that you still, in order to, we know now that in order to be a complete athlete, whether you're in the equipped or not, you need to be training raw to, because you'll be missing out on a lot of the muscles, the stimulation that you need because the equipment will be helping you. And a lot of these equipment, you know, whether you're, whether you're talking about knee wraps or suits is technique. Again, we get back to technique, not only technique on the lifts, but how you're going to lift, um, how you're going to train with knee wraps, how you're going to train with, uh, suits on, because that, that shit is different. It is totally different. Have you ever trained consistently with, with wraps? No, um, 
I've never wanted to. And I will say if you, I should have said this sooner, probably, if you want to use knee wraps in equipment, there is an added risk to some of that. And it's not necessarily bad. I mean, you know, no sport is without risk, but there is a different set of risks, risks that come with it. And there's also some things that are slightly, I don't want to safer is the right word, but you change some risk of injury for other risk of injury. That's a great way. Of and so it. for you, lifting and equipment might actually help out because you have a previous injury history from some other sport, whereas for someone else, it might make them more likely to get hurt. So you kind of have to decide that for yourself. But I would say um, the technique itself makes such a big difference in training because one, you have to lift with a certain technique in order to successfully complete the lift. Um, but some of the things that you have to do to be able to lift equipped do not train the same muscle group groups as that same lift done raw, just Correct. because of the completely different technique. So if you think about an equipped squatter, they usually have a really wide stance. Um, their toes are usually turned way out. I said they, they go really, really slow on the way down. Um, you know, you just see a lot of like completely different technique there. And even if you see somebody who's not in a squat suit, but they're just in knee wraps, they're still going to do certain things differently. They're going to push their hips way further back um, than somebody who's completely raw and just in knee sleeves is. And so what happened to your quads? Like, depending on what technique you're using because of the equipment you're in, you're going to completely neglect certain muscle groups. And if you don't get out of that equipment and train them, eventually that's going to be your limiting muscle group. Yep. I mean, you need quad strength to do a squat, no matter how you do it. Yep. The amount that you need to complete it is yes, it's going to change, but at some point that will catch up with you if you don't go back and correct that problem. So I think you, you really can't get away with only training raw or I mean only training equipped you're gonna have to go raw at some point to actually be able to make progress in your equipment yeah I mean that's a great point because I think one thing we sometimes maybe if you're new and you're starting out and you don't think about it we talk about sitting back in your squad a lot um, and when you are in sleeves uh, I'm sorry when you're in wraps or suits you know your squat suit you have to do a lot of this sitting back or sitting into the suit in order to get the rebound off of it and in a traditional raw squat, you wouldn't do that. That wouldn't be the most advantageous way to squat, you know? And so what Christina is saying is that what you're going to be using more of in a raw squat is more of your quads um, because you're going to have to get out of that position. Your positioning is going to be different, which will call for your quads and your glutes and your hands and everything to be used differently. Um, and, you know, that's a funny thing that Julie and I were talking about that she was so used to sitting back, sitting back in the box squat, sitting back in these positioning. Then when she started taking that away, she realized that her quads were just, they might've been shapely, but they weren't as strong as they should be in comparison to a posterior chain. And I feel like sometimes that's me too. I just got into this rut of really kind of sitting back still, you know, I'm still using my quads, but not necessarily as comfortable and they are not as strong as they should be. And you... In a raw squat, you really shouldn't sit back. I mean, hardly at all. Right. Um, even low bar. And that's one of the things about the fact that equipped lifting came first and then raw came second is that um, the technique from equipped lifting came into raw, 
even though it maybe shouldn't have, but nobody knew any better at the time. Um, and it has taken a long time, and I wouldn't say we have successfully done it yet, to get rid of the misconceptions that it should be the same. Like I still see coaches all the time tell their lifters to sit way back in a raw squat, um, and they want them to do certain things that if they were in equipment would be, I mean, they would be correct, but right. in but squatting raw, they're not, and they're actually limiting what you can do. And I see that, especially with coaches who are older, yeah. I will say, just because they learned the equipped technique first. Um, and with people who coach both, I don't always see that they can like, um, they, they just coach a squat the same way, no matter what you're doing Interesting. or yeah. really early. Mm-hmm. Um, always obviously, right. but a lot of times if I see coaches who coach both raw and equipped, I see that they, um, teach a squat the same way. And people who are really big diehard conjugate users. Yeah. And that's, only, I mean, conjugate came from the equipped lifting world. And so it's not that you can't use it with raw, um, at all. It's just that it has to be done differently than like the traditional way. Right. right. So some of the, the, the variations that are really, really popular in it were made mm-hmm. for equipped lifting. And if you do them as a raw lifter, you're not going to get as much out of it as the equipped lifter would. Right. Right. There's so many nuances to that, you know, because you can very, you can definitely have conjugate without having any box squats or any of these things like that does not determine a conjugate program. Those are just parts of a a lot of conjugate programming has those things. And I, I think there's this gray area too, right? Because there are some people who don't know how to sit back on a squat just enough to actually have a good squat. Right. So there's a lot of times where I coach people, I'm like, you got to sit back more. And I might not say that for somebody else, but this person does not know how to actually squat in that position where they need to have some sort of hinging going on and they're not really understanding the hinge. Um, I, I, you know, same thing like you're saying, older coaches. I, there's a lot of coaches that are still out there that are very popular coaches that will tell people to squat a certain way and that works for them, you know, and, and th- that's great if that works for you, um, but it doesn't work for everybody. So I think it's good to give it a try. I've tried to change my squat. I don't know how many freaking times, I mean, over how many years I've changed it and it worked for me then and it changed and it works and it changes. So um, those are all things just to think about um, when you are training. So getting back into the actual training for equipped or raw, I think one of the biggest things that you might see different uh, besides um, having knee wraps, if you are squatting, you will have occasion, whatever knee wraps or suits, there's going to be moments, like she said, where you're going to have just raw, none of that stuff, maybe just your belt, your wrist wraps, and maybe some sleeves. And then you're going to start to incorporate whatever your equipment is. Sometimes people like to incorporate it early. Sometimes they like to incorporate closer to the meet. Maybe they've had more years of competing with the equipment. So they'll be like, ah, just do the last four weeks. Some people do it for 12 weeks. Um, so it really kind of just depends. Um, who you're training with, what you're trying to do. And I would experiment with it. If it feels very foreign to you, I would give yourself enough time to train in that. Um, You know, maybe it's the whole year off and on and then more exclusively as you get closer to the meet. But that's a big thing. Like if you don't feel comfy, um, that's something you need to consider because when, you know, when you're stepping on that platform and you're not able to get down low enough or maybe you're not sitting back enough, you know, there's all these things to consider when you start wearing equipment. Um, you're going to feel like lost and it's going to suck and you don't want that to happen. Yeah. I would say I don't have um, any specific tips on his timelines for things other than just the newer you are to something. And whether that is 
equipment in general, or if you get a new piece of equipment that you now need to break in, um, give yourself a longer amount of time. Because what I understand about equipped lifting is that it is harder to hit depth. It's harder to get the bar to touch your chest. It's, It's the making it count in a meet that is the extra hard part of equipped lifting because you can squat down and stand back up, but can you get low enough? And like, you can get the bar down most of the way, but can you get it to touch your chest? And like, how much weight do you actually have to get on the bar in that particular bench shirt to get to your chest? And can you get it back up once you get down there? You right. Know? So, right. Yeah, oh, totally. Yesi, uh, Yesenia, um, Yesika, I'm sorry. Uh, she's, she was one of our earlier episodes. That was one of the things she talked about. She was like, Oh, the technique for bench, you have to bring your elbows in, right? Cause we're trying to activate the suit, meaning you're trying to use all the compression and all these things that you have to do she was, she never competed for years like that. And so she's like, it's very difficult. There's a lot of things to consider, uh, and things you need to unlearn and, you know, be able mm-hmm. to switch off and on, uh, which is important. I would say one of the biggest things that you're going to find with any, uh, maybe gym, um, your gym, you know, they is is a monolift. And so if you've never seen a monolift, um, a monolift is designed, was pretty much designed so that somebody who is wearing a suit does not have to walk the bar out. So what you'll find are these lever uh, attachments onto a very big squat area. So it's, it, this device is very big. It's like, it takes up a lot of square footage. Um, and the benefit of having it is that you can set yourself up. If you had a squat suit on or knee wraps, you can get under the bar. You can, somebody would, you know, you stand up, it would unhook, you can squat down, come back on. Um, so there's a, initially that's what it was used for. And you'll find that a lot with gyms who are going to compete in those equipped or knee wraps. And, you know, you don't have to, Let's put that out there. You can definitely use it and walk out. Tons of people do that. Um, but that's probably one of the biggest things that you're going to find that if you are going to compete in those things, that can be very helpful. I would say some people um, that compete completely raw, but just happen to squat absolutely monstrous amounts of weight. Yes. will still use a monolift in training because it is a safer setup for them. So like Ray Williams is who immediately came to my mind because even though he cannot compete with a monolift, he does typically train with one because one, it's holds the weight that he needs to put on the bar better. And two, it's safer for the monolift to catch a failed squat than it is for him to put people, you know, out there as his spotters and only have two of them or something like that. So yeah, you're talking about 900 to a thousand pounds regularly, regularly. It's crazy. I mean, that's his like 80% is up there. It's like crazy to even think. And I'd say, um, even if you train on, if you train equipped and you compete equipped, make sure that you know what your federation does in terms of racks, because USAPL is always a combo rack and you have to walk it out. And I believe USPA is the exact same, right? Yep. Always a combo rack. You always have to walk it out. And then there are some federations that the federation gets to, or the meet director for that particular meet can choose whether they use a monolift or not, which is confusing to me. I think I would rather just know it's always the same, but right. um, I guess they just tell you in advance and you prepare accordingly. Yeah. <laughs> I, w- I would guess that maybe those are the smaller federations or smaller areas like meet directors that don't have maybe tons of money for a monolift. I know they did it at um, the big hybrid meet in Miami. Oh yeah. Uh, in the one that Les went to, right? And Les yep. and, and 
I can't remember what federation that was this year. It has been USPA in the past and they went a different route and I cannot remember. Maybe it's the W, the WRPR, I forget that. It's a newer fed. That might be the one. Um, yeah, so that's probably one of the biggest difference that you're going to have. Um, I like them on a lift. It's definitely one of those things that you, but somebody has to be there with you. It's definitely one of those things. There are attachments, Rogue and a couple other companies sell attachments that you can put onto your rack so you can have them on a lift. Um, and pretty much, you know, it's just going to catch the swing, um, and eliminate that walkout portion of the squat, which is super important. Um, so as we get into, uh, the next parts, we want to talk a little bit more about bars and this is why it'll be important for you if should you decide to do raw or equip because not all the federations are going to have the same bars like not all federations are going to have a monolift or not so those are one of those conversations that you need to have with the meat director um and usually they announce those things if it's something that is you know um different or it'll be in their event details when you guys sign up they'll say what they're going to be using and um, those are just things, you know, just to keep out a lookout for. So you have in the back of your mind. And those are things like if you're like us, you probably asked before. I think a lot of women are like that. I think a lot of guys are like, uh, <laughs> I just find a lot of guys are like, man, okay, I don't know. Um, but for example, um, the USAPL uses the same bar for everything, right? So they use a power bar for all three lifts where that's not the same with a lot of the other Federations, and that's something that they have stuck to since they transitioned uh, many, many years ago. And upon my investigating and with history, uh, which I think is awesome, it does make it simple for anybody. If you buy a power bar, um, you you know, and you're training at home or whatever, you know, you're going to use the same bar for everything. You don't have to worry about a different bar for stuff. And I think that that's definitely a plus. Uh, now, where you start getting into the different bars, we can go over the bars a tiny bit. We have what they call a squat bar a deadlift bar. And of course the monolift is what we kind of get into. Now there's a bunch of very, you know, totally different bars that are out there. I'm not talking about those ones, talking about more of what you would compete with. And really there's only a squat bar and a deadlift bar that you would compete with. They don't change, uh, the bench as far as I know with any federation, there is no bar. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, there is the, and I'm totally spazzing on the name of the bar. It starts with an M and that's usually a squat bar. It's it's a different type of squat bar, but it's not for benching. Do you know what it is? I'm trying to think of it. it starts with an M. What's it look like? It's a big bar. <laughs> like fatter? Yes. Like an axle bar? No. No, the grip isn't fat. I'll I'll I'll, I'll loop back to this and I'll remember. Um, okay. But uh the reason why they would use a different bar for squatting or deadlifting um really is just to give a slight advantage for each of those lifts. So for example, I think the biggest change uh, or the biggest difference in bars is when you're deadlifting. Deadlifting on a deadlift bar versus a power bar or a stiff bar, as people say, is totally different. Um, and I think that maybe if you're lifting very light, so maybe you're not hitting the 200 range yet, um, there you might not feel the huge difference. And sometimes I think that comes with time too. You just start to feel the difference of how the bar is moving because you're very efficient with your moving. So now you feel when there's a click or a change or a move. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that that's one of the biggest things. If you're not in this range where the, the bar um, is heavy enough where it's going to actually bend, then you might not feel the difference. Correct? 
Yes. I'd say the deadlift bar makes the most difference for people who pull probably, I'm going to say over 400 pounds because I pull in the mid threes and I can pull the same thing on both bars once I get used to one or the other. Right. Now I can train heavier on a deadlift bar because it's just enough of an advantage that I can recover from it better Mm. compared to the stiff bar. But like my actual max is relatively the same on both bars. Um, I think for the bar to really have enough whip to actually make a noticeable difference, you got to be like pushing the 400 pound range for the girls. And then um, guys, it might even be higher than that because a power bar, even though it is much stiffer and much less likely to bend, there is a point where it will still bend a little bit. I oh, mean, yeah. not as much as the deadlift bar would, but like it does have some give. Right. Um, otherwise it would break. Right. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so definitely the, into the higher weights, it will start to change a little bit and it's going to depend on what style you use to pull. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. like a sumo stance versus a conventional stance is going to notice different things. Like, I don't think you're going to get quite as much out of it in conventional for most people. Yeah, there I will wonder. Be some people I never really do. thought about it, but yeah, I wonder. But and, for but- sumo, even if you get, let's say half an inch of give, like you can get the bar half an inch higher before the weight plates break the floor. That's just that much more upright you are. Yeah, totally. So it's going to depend on a lot of things. Like some people will really not notice a difference and some people will swear it's a huge difference. Right. And so, you know, technique's going to matter. A bad technique's not going to, if you have a terrible deadlift technique, neither bar is going to help you. No. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> each one has their advantages and it has its disadvantages. And so something about that is going to help your specific strength. Yep. That's exactly right. And so if you've yep. never deadlifted with a deadlift bar, the, the bar is actually called a flex bar as well because it flexes. And so just like Christina was saying, that when you start pulling the bar, there's going to be a little bit of a give where you're pulling before the plates leave the floor. And that was just designed to kind of give a slight advantage. I wonder why exactly that they decided to do that. Be interesting to find out. Well, another um, difference in the deadlift bar and the, the power bar is it's longer and it's smaller yeah. in diameter. So it's easier to hold on to. Um, the length of it is has a lot more to do. The, the, I said the length and the decreased diameter are mostly what gives it the whip. Yeah. Um, it's not made of something different. Right. You know? So right. I, I, I thought that there was something to do with the way that it's, um, where not the collars, but the way the, the side attaches, I could be wrong, but I, I thought they're longer usually, yes. but I'm yeah. not sure if it, that's why, or there's, I know that that is part of it, but I heard that there was something to do with the way it's designed inside to cause it to lift more. I could be totally wrong. Who knows? Anyways, I don't know about that one. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, it's more money. You buy another bar, a deadlift bar. Of course, all these all these specialty bars are going to be an extra cost. Something your gym might might or not have. Um, so that's also something to consider. If you're just training at home, maybe you just want to compete, and you don't have to necessarily buy a deadlift bar or a squat bar or a monolift. Just know that when you compete in these things, that they that is part of what's there, and it can help you. It can be an advantage. Um, so you'd want to you know maximize that if that's something that you're uh, that you're able to do. I was going to come back to the squat bar. Um, I know USPA can choose whether or not to use it in certain divisions. 
Like they may choose not to use it for the women, but use it for the men. Yep. So I'd say definitely check on that for the meat that you're competing in because the squat bar weighs more, which ultimately won't make that much of a difference to you because it's a 10 pound difference. And that weight's either going to be in the plates or on the bar, but it is longer and yes. it is wider. And so it's going to feel different on your back and it's going to feel different um, balancing you because the, like it changes your center of mass. And so if you've never used one and you suddenly get under one at a meet, it might feel a little bit surprising. Yeah. yeah <laughs> you can totally. do it. I mean, you know, you can do it, just know it's coming and know that it's going to feel different. Yeah. And they might not always have a squat bar for you to be practicing and warming up. Right. They should, um, but they might not always. I would have to say that I'm trying to think of a meet where they use a squat bar for women. I, I don't even know if we've trying to think of other meets that I've been to. It's not very common. So if they do, um, I, the reason a meet director would choose a squat bar is if the weight's heavy enough. And usually the the person is getting big enough, <laughs> you know? So we're starting to get into the bigger boys. Um, and that's why they would choose those. The USPA meet that I did, and this was not here in Alabama, it was in Georgia, uh, was my second meet ever. And they did use a squat bar for us. Oh, did they? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Cause I'm trying to think the ones I did in Georgia. I mean, I don't remember if they did. And if they did it for you, then they probably did it across the board. I only remember because they weren't in the warm up room. Or they might have been in there, but I didn't realize that I should be using one. Right. So either way, I didn't warm up on one. And it it didn't affect the numbers I hit that day. I don't think it was my second meet. You know, like I didn't know what to expect like I do now. I right. wasn't I already wasn't training on calibrated plates and stuff like that. So it was gonna feel different no matter what. But right. right. now I think it would shock me a little bit. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to training with competition equipment. So if it was suddenly different, I wouldn't be expecting it. Right, right, totally. All right, so this is where we're going to kind of get into uh, some of the major uh, federations, and we'll close it up with all of this, um, and how they might judge a little differently, um, and how their equipment um, is used in each of these divisions, whether or not they use equipment. So I would have to say that USAPL and USPA were just, of course, biased because they were affiliated with them, but I, I think we would both say that they're in the top Um for many reasons. One, um, they're clear with their, their judging. It's usually really across the board. They are very professional. Uh, they are, they handle things as prof professionally as they could be. Um, and I would say that the USAPL is definitely, definitely the standard and a lot more harder when it comes to their judging. So Christine and I were just talking about this, where the verbiage in our rule books, a lot of the verbiage is very similar, even to the ones where you would say like, they're not as, as strict. So like SPF, they're maybe not as quote unquote strict, but the verbiage is very similar to what you would find in both of our federation's rule books. But the actuality is when you're actually on that, on that platform, it's different. USAPL is a lot more strict in what they're going to call, um, especially in the squat, I would say, right, is going to be the biggest one. Uh, and so that's just something to consider when you are going to compete in raw or equipped. And like she said, the only thing that you can really compete in if it's not raw is single ply or knee wraps, correct? Yes. Yeah, so one of the things that came out of the fact that raw lifting is so much more popular than equipped lifting is that 
the qualifying totals to go to equipped nationals in the USAPL, which is it's referred to as open nationals. So if it's open, it means equipped. Um, raw nationals always has the word raw. But the qualifying totals to get to equipped or open nationals are lower than the qualifying totals to go to raw nationals. And it's because they update the totals based on each respective meet. So like as raw nationals gets more competitive, they keep increasing the totals. And as equipped lifting is not as popular and there's not as many people at that meet, it's not as big. So the totals move faster. So there is one um, fun trick that if you just really want to compete at a national meet in USAPL and you cannot hit the raw nationals total, you can compete raw, but enter the equipped division and you can go to equipped nationals and compete raw. <laughs> and you would think that that would be something that people wouldn't do, but a lot of people do it because they want that national experience. Right. And so they will compete raw, but they don't want to put on the equipment. So that's uh, just a weird fun fact. About know, it's like two. a little loophole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the national office knows it's like that and they're fine with it because, you know, Raw Nationals is still as competitive as it needs to be. Right. And the people who are competing raw at equipped national, they're not going to win, you know, right. so it's fine. Right. right. Um, but I will say, like you said, the, the, even though the rules are very similar for most of powerlifting, especially in the more well-known federations, I mean, the standard on paper is very similar. I think the USPA and the USAPL rulebook for squat depth says literally the exact same words. Wow. But if you if you watch meets across the board, and especially if you include the IPF, so the USAPL is under the IPF umbrella, you will see like that is the strictest squat depth mm -hmm. um, that I've seen at least. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. it's pretty standard. I mean, referees are human. They're doing their best. Sometimes the spotters in the way, you know, you can only judge the best of what you can, but I'd say that is probably the strictest. Like they expect you to truly be below parallel yeah, or they're not going to give it to you. And I would say USPA is the next strictest. Like it is pretty similar, but things that are a little bit higher. And I don't mean high, like above parallel. I just mean like maybe a little more borderline. Right. Will sometimes get by that would not get by in USAPL. Um, at least at the higher level. And then I would say most of the other federations, um, they're somewhere in that, like, if you're pretty close to parallel, you might get away with it. Right. They really may not make you go below. Right. Um, so, and that it's up to you what you want out of the federation. Like maybe you don't care if your squat is perfectly below parallel, you yeah. just enjoy lifting. And so like right. for you, the right federation may not be USAPL or USPA because that's not something that's important to you to lift to a specific standard. Right. Um, and that's not a bad thing right. at all. I agree. It just, it just depends on like what your goals for your powerlifting competition are. Um, and I would say the other thing that I have noticed to be different from coaching at USPA meets from competing at one myself and from, being a ref and, you know, being at a lot of USAPL stuff is the bench pauses are longer for USAPL. Oh, they're they brutal. Actually, yeah. Like that bar better be stopped and it is visibly still and <laughs> then you'll get a press command. Um, and I do see sometimes in USPA, the bar will touch their chest and they get press immediately. Yeah. Which again, I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing. 
it's just a difference that you've got to be ready for when you're training and when you're deciding like what's important to you in powerlifting. Yes. It's funny because I know Les is like, Hey, are you, are you Georgie Medjie? <laughs> I was like, yeah. He's like, okay, good. Okay, good. <laughs> because. Oh yeah. And I mean, even in, in each federation, every rep is going to be a little bit different. I mean, they're right. human. Like they cannot be robots. Right. I know of certain referees in USAPL that if I see them in the, the chief referee chair, I'm like, Oh God, I better get lower. Right. Or like, okay, I'm about to get an easy pause. And it's right. not because they are intentionally being easy or harder. It's just, that's their interpretation of the standard. And they're they're I mean, they're, they're fair across the board for every lifter they see that day. Correct. Right. But, so you no know, matter that, what, who's stepping really... up, they're going to do the same thing. Right. Which is important. So yeah, I think those are some things to consider. So if you did want to do multiply, you would not go to USAPL. Um, that's not right. something you would compete in, um, because of that. Um, after, I think after this, so I guess we should clarify a little bit. The IPF is sort of the top. Okay. So when you're competing in USAPL, if you want to take your powerlifting to the next level, that's where you would compete on worlds or an international, uh, platform. And it doesn't necessarily have to be international for us, you know, so sometimes it's done locally. So actually for the USPA, we had, um, our first drug tested, uh, world was in Georgia. And so I was in Atlanta and that was the first one that we had. We didn't have it overseas yet. I think they're just kind of feeling out how popular it'll be. So it doesn't necessarily have to be out of our area, but this is where they're going to have a different standard, um, a slightly different standard as well, right? So you're going to have different coat, uh, different refs there. They're going to be, have different shirts on, um, and the, that's just things to consider. Like she said, in your equipment that you choose, some equipment might not be approved. You know, they're going to have this approval lift for raw, but might not be for IPF. I'm sorry. I said that funny. USAPL, <laughs> but not for IPF. There we go. I was like, where did I, I said that funny, but my brain wasn't registering where. Um, so that's just something to consider. So when you do see IPF, just know that they're sort of at the top, um, it, once you pass any kind of meat that you do in your local area. So I'd say the best way to explain it is to think of the IPF as the IOC for powerlifting. So um, for the International Olympic Committee, you have national organizations who fall under that umbrella. So USA Gymnastics or like Great Britain Gymnastics are their own organization that like fall under a different um you know, fall under one big international organization. And yep. so the IPF is the same thing. It's the International Powerlifting Federation. And in the US, USA Powerlifting is their affiliate. I think there's actually an APF, which gets really confusing exactly what that is, because that's kind of the same thing as USAPL, but USAPL is the one that you need to know here in the States. And then, you know, in Canada, you have CPU, and that is Canada's IPF right. affiliate. Like that is who from Canada will go to IPF Worlds. Right. Um, I would say the thing, one thing that sets USA powerlifting and USPA apart, and it's not necessarily better or worse, it's just a difference, is to go to worlds, to go to IPF worlds, you must win USA powerlifting nationals. Right. So you have to actually win or you have to be like second place and the first place person can't go. So they go to you. Um, but either way, like you've got to win at a national meet. If you never go to a national meet, you'll never go to Worlds. Um, and I think USBA Ours has, is IPL. Right. And I say for right. nationals, um, I think the qualifying totals are a good bit lower than what USAPLs are currently. Um, 
And then for IPL Worlds, you can qualify just by doing a local meet. Is that correct? Correct. You just need a class two total. Right. And so I was, um, but I would say the difference is in USAPL, winning nationals or winning the Arnold or getting to go to IPF World is like the highest level of honor you can achieve. Totally. Whereas in USPA, it's things like going to the Kern. Yes. It, they're just a different um, like high level competition. So like I, Steffi I, Cohen is probably not going to go to USPA nationals. So if you want to compete against the best of the best, like you got to go to the current or you got to go to one of the other big meets yeah. compared to, to get the best of the best in USAPL. Usually it's nationals. Yeah. And that's, that's world. interesting yeah. to put it that way because yeah, I think there's more exclusivity when you're talking about IPF worlds, you know, because you have to qualify or you have to win, not necessarily qualify. Yeah. And you that just means that whatever your total is has to be within this class totals as we call them so there's elite totals there's class one totals there's class two totals and each federation will have a different requirement for your weight um your age and your division so there's there's a, if you guys google it you'll find it online and it'll you kind of just line it up find out how heavy you are how old you are we think oh i'm almost on that masters i'm just a little hot skip next year i'll be able to compete in masters um but then it gives you a total and that's how you qualify at least for uspa so a lot more people can can compete in our worlds in comparison so as we kind of talk about different federations i'm going to say that i'm going to kind of just go over some of these federations um and how they're a little bit different and they might not even be relevant in your area um, as much as USAPL or USPA. Um, APF is a big one in the Midwest area uh, around here as well and that's the American Powerlifting Federation. They've been around a long, long time and Larry Pacifico um, had started that and Larry's son, I believe, is part of West Side. I, I just know that the family of lifters, Larry Pacifico, is very known in the history of, of training um, in powerlifting. So APF is very popular. They use knee sleeves. Um, they can do equip. They do monolift. So those are things to consider. Um, APA, which is American Powerlifting Association, and WPA both have tested and non-tested. APF, as far as I know, is just non-tested. So that means you don't have to be drug tested. And that's kind of probably one of the biggest things that's going to change within all these federations. If you are very much like, I am not going to take any gear, I'm not going to take any performance enhancing drugs, um, then I would consider other natural federations just because it's kind of nice to see how you line up with other people who are just like you, you know, I mean, they're pretty much natty, you know, we were some natty people. And um, I competed for years with USPA when they weren't uh, drug, you know, uh, drug tested. And just because I, I love the Federation, I love the people. Um, and I knew that I would be competing against other people who were, um, taking some sort of PEDs and it is what it is. You know, it's like, it, I, I knew it and I was okay with it. So if for you, you want to see how you line up a little bit more, this is where things are going to be a little different. Now, like I was saying earlier, hundred percent raw, which is another Federation called hundred percent raw and duh, they're going to be 100% raw. <laughs> um, they only allow uh, a leather belt is what I read. So no wrist wraps, none of that other stuff. It's just a leather belt, which is kind of crazy, right? I thought, wow, that's kind of crazy. I huh. would give up my belt before I would give up my knee sleeves for heavy squats. Like I would rather do it with my knee sleeves and no belt. You're that good. Would you train my, without your belt a lot. My, yeah, that would change my squat more than like having to give up my knee sleeves and keep my belt with, I think. That's so funny. Not me. Like I, tra <laughs> I train without my knee sleeves all the time. I think it's only like the last 
like last couple of weeks of peaking, I'll, I'll throw it on. I just hate taking it on and off. Again, it gets back to my laziness of putting <laughs> things on and off. Like I'm like, Ugh, do I have to put on shoes? Like that's where I'm at. Like I'm at that point of laziness when it comes to like, I could do it without, you know? Um, another very popular one, um, is, uh, revolution powerlifting syndicate, which is also known as the RPS. Um, and I love RPS. They lift with a monolift. Uh, if you know, Shayna, Shayna Miller has been on the podcast. She was in our first, I think fourth episode. She's in the earlier episodes. Her and her husband are meet directors out here in Kentucky and not out here since I'm in Alabama. However, she comes into Tennessee sometimes. And I saw her last year over in Tennessee. And I love the the energy um, that you have at RPS Meets. And, you know, each meet, meet director will be a little different. They are a non-tested one. And so, and they also work with a monolift. So another thing to consider. In the South over here, we have SPF, which is Southern Powerlifting Federation. It is a non-tested league as well. And I think the biggest difference with some of these um, federations, and I know this specifically for Southern, um, for SPF, they don't have a squat start command. So with USAPL and USPA, when you're squatting, you walk the bar out, they tell you start or squat, which makes you know, you have to squat up and down and then they tell you rack. So there's two commands to that. With SPF, you can walk it out and just start. And when you are done, they're going to tell you to rack it. So it's just something to consider. If you are going to compete in that federation, you need to make sure that you have those um, commands down uh, because they will be different for each one. NASA, the Natural Athlete Strength Association, which is out of, I would say, California. It's very popular out in California. I know that Lord Elliott and um, some of the guys out for USPA and out there are part of NASA. Um, they are also tested and there's no start command on their bench. So that's another thing you're going to find with, I think IPL is another one. Uh, there is no start command. So you're going to unrack it, get to your chest, and they're going to tell you press and rack. So I would say that those are probably our top and, I, and I'm sorry if you lift with another federation and I did not mention them. Um, I was trying to think of a lot of the basic ones that people are in. And what did you, you say WRPF? Did I say what? WRPF? Yes. Okay. I missed it. <laughs> oh, no, no. I didn't say it for this. I'm sorry. I, I said it from when we were talking about. Um, yeah. Okay. For Steffi's. That's Steffi's what the mind. hybrid showdown was this year. It was WRPF. So WRPF, I should probably mention them. They've been around, I think only the last, well, I take that back. They originated in Europe. I believe that they're out of Russia and they wanted to expand to America. So now you're going to find a lot of the big meets are WRPF. They're the Kern is WRPF because Russell Kern, who owns, you know, WR, I mean, who owns, um, I mean, the, the Kern is his competition. It's named after him. He's the meat director as well as maybe the president, the American president. I think he is the American president for WRPF. He is the main person out here in America. So um, the Kern is going to be a WRPF. The um, eight-man elite that I was at, where which was CC's meat, that was a WRPF. You're seeing a lot more um, that are associated with them. And, uh, they're just making their way and there's, they are very, they had a monolift now monoliths. You can walk it out. They had a monolift. I, I, the, the judging was cool. I actually enjoyed it. That's what made me think of that earlier. They can choose. Yes. They don't have to do monolift. That was the one that I was trying to think of earlier. So I think they usually do. I, it seems like they usually use one. 
I've only seen monoliths. So I, I'm assuming it's because those kind of meats are kind of a, a bigger one. I'm, I would think right. that there's not a lot of meat directors. I know that I spoke to somebody that told me that he wanted to expand and, you know, into this area for OWRPF. So yeah, that's definitely another one that is up and coming um, and it sees a lot of potential. Um, and again, those are just things you need to consider because that's a non-tested uh, federation. And you sometimes might not pay as much. So you're going to have different fees, you know, for when you are a drug tested. Some, it's expensive because the meat directors have to pay for, well, at least for USPA, we have to pay for the peen <laughs> that you have to test after. So there is a smaller increase in the fees because we have to cover those costs. WRPF has a drug tested division. Oh, do they? They either do or they're all drug tested. I was just trying, I'm on their website right now as we're doing this and I'm trying to figure it out and I cannot tell, but there is a list of prohibited substances on their website. And so because I don't think they're always tested, I think they must have a drug tested division Okay. or they are starting one. Maybe that's it. I mean, it could be that they are starting one and it's kind of like USPA. It's still kind of like building up. And so we right. just haven't seen it yet, but right. there's a list of something that you can't take and it <laughs> looks pretty standard. I mean, you know, the normal things that are banned in most federations. So right, right. I'm not entirely sure. Interesting. If well, that's a separate um, division. Yeah, that'd be interesting to see. Uh, I know they're trying to grow it. So it's definitely, right. you know, they're definitely trying to grow it. So I wouldn't be surprised if they're trying to offer that because they see there is a movement. I mean, there really is a movement for people who just want to be natty. And I'm sure there's going to be a movement for people who don't want to be natty. <laughs> you know, there's going to, it's going to go through those routes, but it's just more accessible to people. You know, if they're not having to wear a lot of equipment, if they're not having to take a lot of drugs, you know, and, and, or to be competitive and have fun, you know, that's going to be more accessible. And that's what we're seeing now. We're definitely seeing that movement, um, towards that. Now, how strict would you say that the USPA drug tested division is like, what do they test a certain percent or do they test on suspicion? Like, what is the policy for yeah. that? So I think a okay. lot of people need to remember this is they're not going to drug test every single person. They they drug test the top Wilkes. So that would depend. Your Wilkes score is dependent on your weight and how much you lift it, pretty much. It's an equation that we use to determine a certain number. So your number might be anywhere from, you know, very strong people are 300, 400 above they test those top ones and that's, and that's pretty much it. They're going to test them and that's it. So it, potentially you could be taking drugs, be really shitty lifter and compete in, <laughs> and compete in, in the uh, drug tested division. Um, I think as far as I know, unless it has changed in the last couple months, we've only had one person that tested positive and that person was on TRT. And so if you are somebody who's on some sort of testosterone replacement, or even if your medication falls under that banned list, um, it's not allowed, you know? Um, so that's just something to consider as far as USAPL, what is your, what is your protocol? Well, that's what I was going to say. My next question for you was, are there out of meat tests for USPA drug tested? Nay. No. Yeah. Okay. So then that's probably one of the biggest differences. USAPL's rule for meat directors in local meats, and it's actually across the board for local, regional, national meats, but it is 10% of the number of lifters who lifted in that meat. So let's say I have 40 lifters, I have to test four people. Mm. Now it's up to me who I test, um, but of course the goal is to not have anyone cheating. So I 
Well, test who I think needs to be tested. And most of the time, it's going to be the strongest people. Yeah. But if someone looks suspicious, I will test that person. Yeah. And I have caught, not me literally, but like we have caught people that we went, mm, I don't know about that person. And yeah. they didn't even, you know, they didn't even get on the podium, but I was right. And they didn't pass their drug test. And now they cannot lift, you know, for however many years or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty and stiff, then, right? With you guys. I've, it's like so many years or something, right? Oh, yeah. Like first offense, you can get multiple years of suspension. It depends on what the substance was mm. and how many, what, you know, like what level of it you had. So like if you get, so there's cer certain stimulants are banned. Usually if you get banned for a stimulant, it's like six months. But if it's like, you know, if you're taking testosterone, you might get four years right off the bat for your first oh, event. So it yeah. kind of depends on like what um, level it is and how long they feel like the effect of what you took is going to be, you know, carried on. Cause like a stimulant's out of your system very quickly. Yeah. But if you take one on meat day, it's going to last on meat day versus right. if you're taking testosterone, you know, that stays with you for a while. So, and the yeah. effects of having taken it stay with you for a while. Um, and then the other difference is, that USAPL does out of meat test. Um, and there's a couple of ways those can happen. If a person has a reason to, a, like a reasonable reason to be suspicious about a lifter, um, like maybe they hear stories that this person is buying something, whatever, um, or the person has said something to you, or you've seen it in writing. If you have a reason to believe that someone is taking something, you can contact the national office and request to have them out of beat tested. Okay. I mean, as a referee, as an official, I don't right. mean any random person. Now, if you are suspicious about someone, you have to report it to an official and they'll get it to the right person. But, um, yeah, so that makes it a lot more strict. Yeah. yeah. So that's just for anybody. Like you could be Joe Schmo with a 200 kilo total and they can still test you. Um, but if you are in a certain tier of lifter, the more elite lifters for the most part, um, then they're going to require you to turn in what they call an athlete locator form. And that is basically where you are at any point in any day. Um, and they can test you at any time if you're in that pool. And that's anybody who's on a national team, anybody who is, uh, you know, above a certain level that they feel like they need to check on more often because they're lifting at such a high level and they might eventually put them on some kind of team or something like that. So um, if you're a high level lifter in USAPL, you are going to get tested periodically. That's outside awesome. Of that's pretty awesome. I think that's, you know, I, that's really keeping a good standard. And I think that, that that'll be the biggest difference. You know, I mean, there are people I'm sure that cycle off of things and enter a drug tested competition. I think, you know, and don't quote me on this, but I think there is some verbiage in the rule book about, discretion in the same way if you're a suspect mm -hmm. on somebody and there's there's some verbiage in there for that but um yeah that's what that's a great inside scoop so just know that if you are leveling up that that might be uh something we will catch you eventually <laughs> <laughs> we will get you it just might take a little while but um i will say that usapl test more than the ipf does oh interesting yeah so they they test above the ipf requirement so this is one of the more tested countries in the IPF. Now, most of them, I would say, are still testing, but 
they don't test maybe as much. The USAPL's goal is to catch people before they ever get to the IPF. Yeah, which is good. Um, because if, if people in your country test positive a certain number of times, you get banned. Right. And fined and all that stuff. So you don't want people going to IPF Worlds and then testing positive there and you didn't already catch them. You want them yeah. off your team before that ever happens. Totally. Totally. So. Don't, don't be like Russia in the Olympics. <laughs> I believe Russia is currently banned from the IPF as well. Oh, I would I have to double check that, but I know they have gotten in trouble. Oh, and I think sucks. they may have finally gotten they, banned. There's a the last straw. <laughs> yeah. Because it's a certain number of offenses and then yeah. your whole country is out. So. Dang. Oof. Well, we hope that that clarified um, the different divisions, the way to train and things to consider when you're training, as well as the federations um, that you might want to compete with and try out and how that might look a little different. And again, whatever federation you're going to choose and whatever division, just think about that a little bit more, why you want to get into it. And I would talk to somebody, you know, talk to somebody who competes in those things um, because you get an inside scoop and you get a lot more um, than you'll get on a rule book or a website. I mean, that's, that's just the basic truth.